Thanks for joining us for podcast number 50, 50, who would have thunk? Anyways, today we've got Colin and Randy on, and we're going to change gears and talk about the business of rescue. Here we go. <laughs> All right, so today on the podcast, we have got Colin and we have got Randy. And before I introduce these two folks or let them introduce themselves, this one's going to be a little different. We're going to talk around the business of rescue. And we're going to dive down some holes in this. I think it's going to be pretty interesting in regards to, you know, how financial decisions and budgets and memberships drive the business, which in turn ends up driving your training and your equipment. So um, without any further ado, because Colin's on my screen right now, I'll let Colin introduce himself. How'd you get into the business and what are you doing right now, Colin? Hey there. So yeah, I'm... Uh... My name's Colin I'm from Newfoundland. Uh, I started Technical Rope and Rescue about 12 years ago. Uh, came from the rope access scuba diving industry, actually, a bit of adventure sports, kind of involved into uh, some industrial rope access, was involved in the ground search and rescue aspect of things, and uh, turned it into a career through Technical Rope and Rescue. And now we've grown into, we've got about... Uh, a dozen or so full-time employees and say about 20, 20, 30-ish on a, on a call-in needed basis. And so, yeah, that's a little bit about me. And where are you located? Uh, Newfoundland, Canada. So yeah, we're up in Newfoundland. What, what, what uh, city? St. John's. Uh, but yeah, St. John's, Newfoundland. Right on. Beautiful place. Yeah, thanks. I've only ever been to Gander. And if you know Gander, you know why I've been there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, and Randy, how about you? A little bit of background. Yeah, my name is Randy. I'm with Total Fire Solutions. We are a fire and rescue company. We specialize in uh, fire and rescue support. So that's everything from design and build of fire systems for the oil and gas industry, testing, certification, maintenance, right into training. Uh, so rope rescue, confined space, Industry training, such as things like fall protection, uh, first aid. We're premier members with Sprat, so we recently started Sprat training back uh, in, in February of this year. So fairly, fairly new with uh, with Sprat. We offer medical support, uh, EMRs, EMTs, nurses, again, primarily to oil and gas and the industrial industry, as well as uh, safety. We have a safety division. So we do everything from providing safety coordinators to facility and program audits to assisting with certifications, uh, supporting core personnel, et cetera, et cetera. So really one of those, I, I guess I, I hate to use the word one-stop shop, but um, we've tried to merge independent companies into one larger company. So I started uh, our rescue division back in 2006. And uh, I merged with our fire diversion, sorry, back in uh, 2016. So from there, we've just built it up. We've got my location, which is the head training center in southwestern Ontario, a small town called Fergus. And uh, you probably know Fergus. Yeah. Yeah, I know Fergus. Yeah. And uh, our head, uh, head fire shop is in Red Deer. We've got admin office downtown Calgary. And then we recently opened up uh, an office and a shop down in, uh, in Houston, Texas to just really stay up with the, the U.S. demand, which has been a big part of our business over the last couple of years. 
So right yeah, that's what else? Yeah. That's interesting because um, I'm just going to throw a note down here to ask you another question about U.S. versus Canada. And I mean, cool. overseas, there's some differences, obviously, between that. So as I mentioned at the beginning, this is going to be kind of a, you know, the business of rope rescue. And I guess to throw out there right out, you know, to start forming a rescue company, is it easy or difficult? <laughs> Well, I think like any, I guess uh, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, like any company, there's ups and downs. There's pros and cons. Um, I think one of the big things that, that we can discuss again is, is budgeting. Just do we have enough money to get this off the ground? And do we have enough money and resources to actually be competitive out there? Um, staffing is another big one. Can we get the right people for the job? That's, that's tough. Can we get the right people um, with the right certifications, the right competency level? I mean, the list goes on. Well, let me just break those two things down a little bit and yeah. maybe call and jump in as well here. You know, you mentioned having cash. And I mean, entrepreneurship, small business, cash is king. That's what they say. And now a time like COVID, Colin, um, how has it hit places like Newfoundland? And is, that, is budgeting become an issue? Yeah, as far as, you know, the past few months since COVID set in, for about two months there, we were pretty well brought to a halt. You couldn't do any training, and a lot of our projects were put off until uh, restrictions got lifted because everyone was trying to figure things out as far as, you know, uh, safety precautions for their own employees. So for about two months there, we are near down to zero and uh, kind of decided to invest internally. Thankfully. You know, you got to have, uh, you always got to have a bit of a cash around for a rainy day. And thankfully, uh, we had a good year last year. So we decided to reinvest and all of our employees, thankfully, decided to really reinvest some of their time as well and uh, put it back into the company. So that was great. So, you know, we built up on our programs internally, uh, put a new strict training structure in the, uh, in our high bay and uh, basically worked inside to build the business. Uh, had we not had that kind of a, a nest egg there, I guess, or, uh, you know, that's, we wouldn't have been able to get through it like a lot of other companies, I'm sure. Uh, and, you know, it's probably, uh, it's probably going to be hard for another few months because, you know, the, the price of oil and that sort of thing is also, also a challenge on top of COVID that we really haven't recognized yet because the market's down because of the, because uh, of the virus. So there's no doubt been a challenge and uh, as far as is it easy to open a business I guess if you're good at it you make it look easy but there's certainly a lot of uh, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes in the offices a lot of sweat that nobody says that uh, it's definitely a hard thing to uh, keep going you know it's not it's a lot more to it than just throwing a bunch of gear in the back of a truck and collecting up a few firefighters or search and rescue type guys and going on a job there you go and now Randy Colin mentioned something there of kind of a double hit with the price of oil dropping down. And, you know, I'm not here to give away, you know, trade secrets or anything, but we all probably do work in the oil industry at some degree on a pipeline or in a patch or have some relation with that in a refinery. Has that been, you know, is that kind of a double hit that's occurred now with COVID and some of the extraction industries? I'll just lump them together. I know we do a bunch of work in that type of industries. Is that, hurt as well absolutely absolutely i mean you're feeling it full force right now uh, alberta as you know i mean one of the major hubs is 
damn near shut down. Um, a lot of the projects that we had on the plate for 2020 either are gone or they've been postponed indefinitely. Um, we've got a couple turnaround projects coming up here pretty soon, so I think that we're on track for, for those to go, but absolutely a lot of the, uh, especially in the upstream industry, a lot of that stuff has just really died down, so fingers comes up, because again, much like calling them, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming like you as well, Mark, I mean, we were on the training side, we were shut down for almost three months. Um, in fact, we've got our first Sprat course since, since February next week. So um, it's just slowly coming up, but with everything that's happening right now south of the border, I mean, who knows at this point, we just got to stay optimistic and try to stay ahead of it as best we can. Yeah, we lost training for about two months. Um, we were lucky. We had some clients, long-standing clients that uh, required training still and just the industry they were in. It was more dangerous to put the training off than it was to train, so we were lucky. We were also very lucky that, um, and I guess this talks about the diversity in business, not just training, but the rescue standby. Our rescue standby services didn't go down at all, as a matter of fact. Um, stuff started picking up as people like Colin started investing back in their own organizations and requiring people like us mm -hmm. to come in and assist with that. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now you brought up another thing, Randy, and I'm just curious about it. You know, you talk about certification and we can dive down this a little bit deeper as well in a bit later, but you look at it and you go, okay, if you're a, if you open up ABC accounting, and you hire someone not an accountant, because they falsify some documents or they were, you know, 51% in school and they screwed something up. You get some reputational damage. You might, you know, get a lawsuit. Absolutely. If you're, you know, into that with a rescue standby company, I would venture to say that if you hire that person that falsifies their documents and they screw something up, someone's taking a dirt nap quite often is, you know, so where's, where's that liability level compared to opening, you know, fish and chips down the street. Well, it's tough. I think that's where things like insurances come into play. And uh, you, I mean, you nailed it. Certification, picking and choosing what what memberships you want to be a part of, what's going to directly support you if the plane does go down, so to speak. Um, these are these are things that we rely on on expertise from these professionals in the field to to guide us. And with regards to setting up a brand new company and starting a new company, often you don't have that guidance. And these are hidden fees, somewhat like Colin stated, hidden fees that you just maybe don't necessarily plan for. And it can come back, especially in times that we're in right now. I mean, this is, this is just tough times for everybody. And if you look at, you know, if you look at someone's paper resume, mm -hmm. what a lot of people don't understand is, and, and, clients included sometimes which is a challenge you can sit in a classroom from anyone and anyone can actually go out and hang a shingle out and say i'm going to teach you a rescue course and you sit in a class for a certain period of time and you get a card that says you sat in that class that's right and uh that can be anywhere from one day to one one month of training but it really certifies you against no standard uh, it, it might, it might certify you against an NFPA standard or, you know, the upcoming, uh, we've all got our eyes on the whole ITRA standard thing. Um, 
but it could be just a self-claim from that training provider that they put you through a high angle rescue course or a combined space rescue course. So, you know, that's, that's a challenge and it creates that investment internally where you've got to spend some time doing your internal training and really see, you know, are you certified to a standard and can you still do the job or did you take some time in a classroom, do some practical, and now you have a card to indicate that you did just that. All right. So there's some big differences between those things. There's a quick question. Um, I know with us, we have internal qualifications and standards that guys have and girls have to meet. And it's quite lengthy. I mean, if you're a qualified rescue fireman, before you can step a day on a site with us, you probably have at least another seven days of training to show up as like a under supervision rescue tech on a site. Is that very similar to what you guys are looking at? Yep. Yeah. We got, uh, we got our own internal, we got our own internal five day course. So like to work with us internally, um, we want to see that you got your NFPA certifications from your 1006 certifications from a rescue point of view, ideally have some uh, industrial experience. And then depending on, you know, what kind of school you went to, uh, as far as uh, an NFPA school kind of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and what your schools of thought are like, you can learn a whole bunch of cool rope tricks from an NFPA point of view, but then you go on an industrial site, none of that really applies. Uh, so now we gotta, you know, you bolt in like industrial fall protection and some industrial techniques that you use and that sort of thing. So you gotta train them and upgrade them in that. So you end up, like you say, about at least five to seven days on top of whatever NFPA stuff they have already. Uh, that also creates a challenge though. There's also a challenge there because you could have some NFPA type people who've got great resume fresh out of say fire school who are certified but there's other people who might be emergency responders who are firefighters but not trained in rope rescue but actually understand what it is to respond to an emergency you might be able to put them through some internal training they'll be equally as good as a rookie fresh out of fire school who has actual certifications um, and no industrial experience and no actual emergency response experience either. So you need a, you've got a whole bunch of different things to look at as far as blending a team together. People who have certifications, people who have experience, people who have actually responded to something. And then on top of that, do they know how to get around on an industrial site? Because uh, we all know that that's, that's a separate skill as well. <laughs> Randy? Yeah, I'd have to agree. I think internally we're, we're three to five days, but again, somewhat different based on which division they get hired for. So if we're talking SRP, then very much very similar to what you guys have in place. However, if we're hiring for fire support or medical support or safety support, those pre-qualifications may be a little bit different. The hiring process and the orientation process may be a little bit different based on what their job is going to entail with us at the total group. So, uh, but uh, overall, overall, we're, we're in the same boat that three to five days based on what they're doing. And I guess for the folks out there that don't come in with the background, it's been interesting as, um, <clears throat> as the kids of the owners of Ronan have gotten older and started to work. I mean, my son started by cleaning the shop and then cleaning gear and then inspecting gear. And we spoke a year ago, he started working, and the rescue teams and we had to kind of revamp that because now we've got someone coming in that doesn't have the fire background that and it was almost a mentorship program where 
probably for the first three months, he spent as much time either in training or on a site under direct supervision, like not part of the team, but as a, a spare wheel, as he actually did on sites. Like it was almost, you know, a week of this and a week of that, a week of this, a week of that, for probably three months just to get to a point where you could go, okay, I could put him out on a low level site at this point. And what we found really interesting was some of the training that we had to do is, okay, train a person and we all do it. NFPA 1006, we're going to run you through confined space and throw an air pack on your back. A lot of the firefighters have that experience. A lot of the industrial guys, ERT, have that experience. But now as these people start coming in that don't quite have the experience, we start running them through the burn building. Not that we're training these people to be firefighters, but it's that mindset of what that SCBA will do and to make yourself so comfortable with it that it's it's second nature to have it on in that environment because when you get you can't very well put six percent oxygen in a confined space and go and do some training in there that just doesn't work and so how do we get some of these you know kids like i said that are coming through the system now our children and still maintain some sort of quality around that well we got to put them into burn buildings if we want them to be able to go on a site and wear an SCBA, then we have to put it into some sort of situation where they were going to be required to wear that SCBA where we can do it under controlled conditions. And so that's become a really interesting point of view for us because as we get a lot of these younger firefighters even come in, the difference between we've been finding between someone that walks out of fire school now and someone that walks out of our training initially there's not really a lot of difference the way a lot of these fire schools are kind of farming out a lot of the online program. How are you guys finding newer hires? Like, are you strictly picking the 10 year fireman or firefighter out there? Or do you have, I hate to use the word millennial or Gen Z or anything, but are you finding differences in the training that you have to deliver for those folks internally or even externally? Long winded question. <laughs> for us, we take, uh, we've got kids right out of, of uh, fire school but we we have senior people that we pair them up with and they go through you know our internal training i find the biggest struggle for the uh younger people coming right out of fire school is they have the rope and the confined space skills but they don't have that industrial experience and the safety experience for being on an industrial site and uh so that's uh we need to kind of train them in those aspects of it then like They've learned confined space rescue, but now we need to teach them confined space entry over again on how it works on industry, or we need to teach them fall protection and talk about CSA standards and that sort of thing. And uh, so we need to bring them up to date as far as that goes. And then we pair that up with experienced type fellas uh, and girls who can kind of mentor them along when they're on industrial site. So mentorship seems to be a big piece in that. I know it is for us. It sounds like for you as well. For sure. And the, the, uh, the thing is, usually your senior guys, though, are actually on paper less qualified and you're kind of trying to catch those guys up because they've been around forever. And a lot of these qualifications are only coming out now, let's face it. So you're trying to get the senior guys qualified and paper certified. Uh, whereas you got a junior person who has no experience whatsoever, who's certified as much as he can be, but absolutely no experience. So you're trying to bring these two two roads together, you know, and uh, and as as we know as well, there's more there's more of a blending on an industrial site now between a firefighter type, a rope access type, 
and a fall protection work at height type. And there's still times where no one is speaking the same language. And so as we're bringing that together, things are actually getting better. Uh, you know, and uh, I think the younger folks actually have more of an open mind mm -hmm. to new ways of like rope access techniques in a typical high angle rescue firefighter type school of thought. You know what I mean? And uh, I think that's a, uh, I think that's a good thing. Uh, years of tradition unimpeded by change. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's good to be able to get some of the uh, fresh out of school people in there and show them some new techniques. Cause they're not kind of, in that momentum of the last 30, 30, you know, 20, 30 years of experience, but you can't knock that experience either. We've got some experienced guys who are, you know, they, they know more about emergency response than they've forgotten more than I'll ever know, perhaps, you know what I mean? So uh, they're very valuable to have around as well. Yeah. There's a time and place for everybody out there, but yeah, experience is, is really hard to come by with the, with the new group of guys that are coming up because they're, they're new, they're new. And I think, I don't like using the word millennial either, Mark, but uh, I think what 27% or something like that of a country. So if we look at something in and around that 30%, so a third, third of the country is in that age gap. So, I mean, it comes a time where it's just, we got to make it work, but experience, experience is key. And that's, that's hard to come by. That's a problem with experience. And I guess that bodes into my next question. Insurances, we, we've touched on it briefly. I know I pay, a, probably like you, a absolute shite ton in insurance for pretty much everything. And when yeah. we started this many, many moons ago, the insurance wanted proof of my experience before they would even insure the company. So I guess for people that are looking to start out and start a rescue company, understand that, that they're going to want some sort of not just proof of certification, but proof of experience. Is it the same when you guys, you'll see a nod in there, Randy? Yeah, absolutely. Safety ratings as a company. So whether it's IS NetWorld, Aveta, ComplyWorks, I mean, the list goes on that uh, we're looking for green ratings. So um, making sure that, yes, we've got the certifications, but we've got the references. We've got the time on site to be able to back that up. And again, it comes down to experience. And unless you've got the right team that's able to, get you out there and get that experience um it can take a long time to even step foot on some of these sites some of these big oil and gas sites they're looking for your memberships they're looking for certifications your safety rating to step foot on the on the site so a new startup may not have the opportunity to go work for the big suncores and enbridge and Sincrudes with two guys in a rescue bag in the back of your truck like colin said earlier right so this is yeah. all this all takes time and time takes money um it's uh yeah it's a uh, it's tough it's tough you need a you need a full management framework to show yeah. that you have quality control financial control certificate and competency control all that stuff needs to be in place before you even get a look at it in insurance in order to get on some of these big job sites for sure yeah uh and also the big job sites like first when i started I guess you, a million dollars worth of liability insurance might've been okay on some sites, but most places now, you know, it's five, $10 million worth of liability insurance. And uh, other than that, you're just not getting a contract. So, and you know, I, I joke that every time I think every year when I do the update with the insurance companies, I can hear like 
cash registers and jackpots going off in the background on their phone lines. And Sounds saying, like Vegas. <laughs> yeah. It's that, yeah, you're like at a Vegas casino on their end of the line. They're like, you, you do what? You tell me that again? You, you hang off that side of the thing and you're going to rescue these people and yeah, ching, 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 and they just, you know, rack up your insurance bills and yeah, goes up every year. And, and the busier your business is, you need to disclose that to them. So the busier you are, the more money they want. That's right. And it's funny, every year it changes for people out there that don't understand that. This year with COVID, um, that changed a bunch. And this year they came back and they're like, oh, if you're going to work in Cuba this year, and we've worked in Cuba for eight years, it's going to require a separate cost or separate policy kind of disclaimer, which of course comes with a cost. Mm-hmm. You know, every yeah. year they seem to pick a country and go, no, you can't work there this year unless you pay more. <laughs> yeah. So, um, a bit of a controversial maybe question for guys that run a rescue business. Should rescue services be a business? Should the rescuing of other humans be for profit or should that be strictly a public enterprise? Hmm. <laughs> as far as... <laughs> you mean as far as rescue of the public goes you know or are we talking about back to industrial sites here where, where i guess Either that's where or, we, because there's where we make our money but there's there's people that do like us for industrial but you look at like what is it bristol runnings that is running half what is it the uk coast guard or something right now that's a public service there was yeah a, oh years ago now there was some scuttlebutt about trying to maybe privatize the canadian military sartex right now it's yep. 10, 12 minutes. And you're seeing, uh, well, the military or the uh, the provision of the planes and the boats are for uh, search and rescue is being more privatized now. And I think there's a good opportunity there for government and industry to work together. That's my uh, that's my thought on it. Uh, I don't think it needs to be one or the other. Yes, I'm sitting on the fence, I suppose, but uh, <laughs> I do believe that, uh, that you can get a better service that's more efficient if government and industry would work together on the public rescue side of things and uh you know we bit of do we do a bit of work in public rescue i suppose from the point of view of training firefighting agencies so they can do it for free like you guys but the bulk the bulk of the money that you make is in on industry so from an industrial point of view I think it has to be private companies providing the rescue service because a lot of the clients I'm familiar with, you got a small municipality, but a big industry, you're not going to have that small municipal tax base, try and fund rescue for a big industry. So it's not fair to do that to the municipality. So the industry needs to fund that themselves. Um, so in order to do that, they're going to go to private industry. So I guess that's, that'd be my answer publicly. I think, you know, Working together is best. Private industry having should have private industry pay and you know provide that service. Randy, yeah, I'd have to agree with Colin for the most part. Um, I guess as an add-on, the time that EMS has. I mean, if we look at um, you guys as professional firefighters, there's only, there's only so much time, and there's only so many of you guys. Um, on the private sector, I, I absolutely think that there's a value in in a standby rescue company or a rescue business. I think there's a value. For the most part, you've got good and bad, just like anything else. But hiring a good a good team to come out and look after your site, um, competent, so you may get uh, 
get, get a higher level of team responding to that private than you may get in the fire service, just based on the accident, um, based on um, uh, geographical location, um, the time to respond. I mean, we as the general public, we, 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 look, we, we rely on you guys as professionals. But in the private sector, I, I, I absolutely think that there's a, there's a high level that, uh, of response there and responsibility to look after industry. I think the other thing that people don't realize as much with private industry is, and I'm sure it's the same with you folks, is how many times our teams have mitigated a problem before it became an accident. Isn't yeah. that one of the biggest troubles that we, uh, at, on our job sites, you know, if they're, where they're doing a rescue service, how many times does the client say, well, nothing happened? If you could only measure the things we prevented while we were there, yeah. uh, you know, and, and a lot of clients now, thankfully, are starting to realize that. They're actually seeing that, you know, safety statistics are better when they have a contract rescue team on site, which doesn't bode, you know, we have, they have rescue there so we can rescue someone in case of an accident. But if a rescue team is there, the accidents are actually going down. So it's still good investment from the industrial point of view for the client. The ones that have had us around long enough are starting to realize that. And it comes full circle, right? I mean, as far as challenges of starting a company, it's budget, it's getting this work. It's convincing the client that it does work, that these, uh, these, these stats are, are factual, right? So that's, uh, that's something else to consider, I guess. For sure. Um, we talked about <laughs> budgeting a bit here. We might as well hit the nail just directly on the head. I mean, budgeting and I guess the biggest budget would be staffing and very closely followed by equipment and training for a private business. What do you find your biggest challenges around those issues are? I guess uh, for us on, the, on, on staffing is uh, finding qualified people in a, in a timely manner and somebody that's willing to willing to work for X amount of dollars, X amount of time, there's full-time versus contractor status. I mean, we, we've got quite a few full-time employees. Um, I, I, I don't know, I, it's, it's tough, as you guys know, to find good quality people in a timely manner. As far as equipment goes, I mean, that's really depends on how far you want to take it. What do you want to do? If you want to be that one-stop shop where you can, air jobs, confined space entries, medical support, fire, and rescue, you're going to dump a lot of money. And that's a lot of capital that you have to be able to convince the bank that you're going to make it back. So, um, yeah, I guess those are the, there's challenges. There's definitely challenges. Yeah. And as far as your time goes, I think we all entered the business based on a love for rescue stuff or rope access stuff. But yeah. as you become the business owner and the manager and you got people working with you, you do less and less of that. The majority of your job becomes managing people. And you basically have two jobs. You're out on a job site taking part as a rescue technician at times while your business is growing. And then you have a business to manage when you go back. So uh, one way or another, you got to get two jobs done at the end of the week. And that requires a lot of your time. And you really need to realize that you, you need to pay yourself for both of them or you're going to burn out. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, that's, that's a challenge for sure. And, uh, getting the right people together, no doubt. One of our things actually is, uh, 
you know, as a small industrial based company, the industry is evolving to the point now where you can keep people around. We've been around long enough. The three of us have been around long enough where we can show that we've got a longstanding company. But as we were growing, we were finding a lot of our best people that we wanted to keep. They were working with us in order to get that public fire service job. Yeah. So we'd train them and work with them. And we just embraced that as an opportunity to work with some really great people while they went off to work with fire departments. Uh, rather than try and, you know, say like, we'll keep your certificates and all that old stuff. We just say, look, come work with us, train with us, get as many certificates as you can. If you can get a firefighting job, great on you. Because uh, it's not the job for everybody to be chasing contracts like we do and, uh, you know, going the ups and downs and cycling of a uh, of an industrial market. Yeah. It is interesting you say that. Um, we also try to keep at least a couple vets that are transitioning from the military and that want to do emergency services employed full time with us as well. Um, so you include, you know, the firefighters or the people that want to be firefighters and then a few vets that we keep in to do that transition program. You're right. I mean, I think we've had five veterans transition out of Ronan and into full-time service. The thing I think we find is you treat people right. Eventually most of them end up coming back. It might be a year, it might be five years, depending on their life situation, what that department that they went to's policy is on moonlighting. Um, but generally we get a good majority of them back after and that's nice because they grew up full time in our system and they kind of know the system. They're very easy to slot back in. I think you guys see the nods of the head. So yeah. Similar. They, they become clients. They become great references. They help solidify your reputation. There's, you know, there's, there's no doubt. We've kind of just embraced the uh, whole, you know, come with us. We'll help you out. If you want a job elsewhere, we'll help you get a job elsewhere the best way we can. Hopefully you stay with us, but if you're off somewhere else, we'll still deal with you. You got to look at it as an opportunity and that's, it really is. It's an opportunity to work, as you said, Colin, with great people, but if they leave and they get the training and they're able to put in a couple of years, quality years with you, that's a benefit to both. And that's as, right. as Mark said, they're going to come back and uh, that's, that, that, that's super cool to get quality guys that whether it's a part time basis or additional contractors, because again, Mark, you know, the schedule of a firefighter is pretty awesome. So seven days a month or something like that, you can, they're going to come back. They're going to come back. You treat them right. You give them quality training and they're going to come back and it's going to be a benefit down the road for you as well. Yeah. Like I'm not from that public fire service type background. Mark, I think you are, but I'm not, we've got firefighters that work with us and volunteer firefighters and paid, you know, full-time ones and that sort of thing. But I just joke with them, like, it's worth being a firefighter for that shift. I want to be a firefighter for that shift. No one can beat it. Yeah. You know, so from a private company point of view, when you have risks uh, every day and you're in a hustle, like it or not, if you're in the fire service, you don't have that same hustle. You got a good job forever. You're going to retire from there. So small business just can't compete with that. Well, we also talked about experience, and that's hard to get. So if you guys leave the private sector and they go in to become a full-time firefighter, you know they're getting experience now. They're getting that's that right. on experience. They're just going to bring it right back to you. So yeah. like I, this is a, it's a benefit and it's an opportunity. We've got to look at it as an opportunity, not a, not a con necessarily. Yeah, it is oh, a different sure. sword. The only way to get experience is by doing the job, and there's only a few places in the world that do the job regularly. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
And we know that in industry, we just mentioned a little while ago, a lot of people that work with us, they want to get the calls. Of course, right. that's why you're in the business. But when you're in industry, you, you don't want the calls. <laughs> you can't have accidents in industry, right? If we're getting calls in industry, it's not a good thing. Something's going wrong and we're part of that puzzle. We're part of that work equation where, you know, we want to make safety incidents zero. We're all part of that, right? But yet we're there doing rescue and a lot of our guys, they want to be on calls. So when you go to the public service, you're going to get the calls. And we understand that. Like say, you take it as an opportunity and just uh, work with it, have fun with it. We've got some great supporters to work with who have worked with us and now work with uh, public departments like St. John's Regional or wherever. Right. Oh. We brought it up a little bit. Um, organizations and memberships. Go on just a quick list, if you could, of the organizations and memberships that a rescue company or a rope access company or a dual-hatted company has to belong to and what it means to belong to those, like not just financially, but time-wise and things like that. Well, if you're going to be, if you're going to have the reputation that a good solid company is looking for, you have to be involved in the main industry trade associations that affect your business and take part in the group discussions about the legislation and the standards. And so we're involved with SPRAT and the Inter International Technical Rescue Association, ITRA. Not used to saying that one yet, they're so new. Um, and on top of those, uh, you're involved with your own board of trades and your tower associations and Geez, what else are we involved with? I think we spent like over 12 grand last year in just association memberships. Uh, and <laughs> so, yeah, there's, there's the tower one now. There's Sprat. Uh, IRATA is a target we're working towards. Um, and then you got, like, say, your local industry associations, your offshore association, your local board of trade. There's a whole bunch that you can be a part of. And it's, you know, you, you got to spend your time with all of them. I mean, for, for us, it's the same, whether it's Sprat, Irata, ITRA. I mean, you got the construction associations. We're a member of, of several. That's right. I forgot, forgot the construction associations. <laughs> and just to, just to stay on, on, on industry training. I mean, the, the, the soft training, like we call it, the working at heights, fall protection, one day confined space, first aid, and in order to stay competitive and to help, gain market share you have to pay your dues um, a couple local building groups as well for for government working heights that we run here in, in ontario um we're a number we're, we're a member of, of several school boards as well so we work with a couple of universities and some secondary school boards to assist with their apprentice um, again the the one day the your wimises and the first aid and so on and so forth um, Energy Safety Canada is another one to teach some of their programs through Alberta and a little bit in BC and Saskatchewan, but uh, it's it's never ending. I think what you said, twelve grand, we're probably right in there. That somewhere between twelve and fifteen grand, and then there's your personal memberships. There's company memberships, but there's that's right. And if you want to be involved with the, it's one thing to be involved with the standard or just pay your membership fee, but yeah. if you want to make impression. The biggest expense is your own time to be part of it and traveling to these events and none of that's paid. You fund your own travel. You know, you go to the uh, 
international technical rescue conference down the states or you go to a csa meeting or an nfpa meeting and uh yeah. you're part of the standards boards and that's all on your own dime so yeah. uh that cost is over and above the membership fees i guess that's again full circle right because that's that, that's on a company side but then personal we have and i'm sure you guys as well i mean we have crsps on board we have ncso's on board we have rope access technicians on board so you've got your company expenses but then the individual certs i mean and, and, and upgrades and license renewals it's 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 ongoing so it's full circle with you want quality people that have those qualifications have those certifications to help out in the with whether it's insurances or overall safety but you're going to pay for that that's over and above someone's wage so it doesn't take long before you're in that 15 20 25,000 with all your personal memberships and licenses that you have to hold on to in order again to stay competitive out there in the private sector yep welcome to the world company overhead that's right <laughs> exactly and i guess this is a good time to bring this question up i mean we we hit it kind of briefly the difference in between like a certification or a qualification or internal training versus certified third-party training because we're kind of bouncing back and forth especially when you start talking memberships about a third-party certification so yeah so that is something that we value and i would imagine both of you guys do too we try and get all our own internal techs to be third-party certified uh but that's basically all of the third-party certifications are very generic and then yeah. you need to train them internally to your own policies and procedures and having the client who ultimately pays for that understand why it's so important um, is something that you really need to do and the, the clients that you end up working with as your business grows at the end of the day are the ones that understand the importance of third-party certifications and there's no way you can fabricate a certificate yourself uh, it's not about a couple of guys sitting around in their uh, their own boardroom and you know making up a course and giving each other a certificate it's well beyond that we get tested outside our own organization in accordance with standards that we didn't write or have been peer tested and reviewed and I think that's that's really important um, yeah, I think that's really important. You can't replace that. There has to be third-party outside certifications to say that someone outside my organization certified my guys other than me. I think to jump on top of that, I, it's it's convincing the client that this is the per, this this is who you need on site, and this is what we bring to the table. And I think sometimes, like you said, maybe after a year or two, they they start to understand that they see the quality. But initially, trying to find that work and convince them that this is who you're getting, that's a challenge for a new startup. Especially if a client hasn't heard of Sprat, heard of IRATA, they don't know anything about ITRA, NFPA, that means nothing to them. Um, to some clients anyways, to some degree. Yeah, and as far as rescue goes, we don't really, I'm not aware of any regulations across Canada that actually specifies the requirements for a rescue technician. That's something that we're, an industry where we're lacking it just says you need to be in general it needs to be done right so that effectively means as long as it's done it doesn't really say you need to be certified in anything as long as you can prove it can be done uh, but you can't prove it very well unless you're certified <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. 
Now that brings up a question you said across Canada. Um, we've all worked in different parts of the world. Do you think the industry inside of Canada, the call it safety rescue sort of industry, is more difficult, less difficult uh, than other places that you've worked or been part of around the world? Are we doing a good job or a bad job? <laughs> I think, I don't know, I guess we could say a, a little bit of both. And I think it's really province to province too. I know there's some things that we have issues with here in Ontario that these were issues that maybe BC and Alberta solved 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. Um, so I think it's really province to province, not only state to state or, or country to country, I should say. Um, but I think overall, I mean, the more hands in the pot, it makes things really challenging. It makes things very difficult. Um, we all want the same thing. We just have to come to an agreement on what that is. We're doing well, I think, from a company, holding companies account point of view and uh, doing well with the legislation. I think one of the drawbacks as we get more into legislation and requiring policies and procedures, it's actually taking away the ability for good, competent people to make good, competent decisions on the job site. Um, it seems to be like the, uh, you know, the Petzl school of thought in Europe is that you take that piece of equipment and you use it in accordance with your knowledge, skills, and abilities. And, uh, it's more based on competent decisions. Whereas we've got lots of rules and regulations here that need to be complied with. And sometimes, especially with fall protection and that sort of thing, sometimes that can be, be hindering, uh, in some cases. Yeah. So sometimes these regulations, both business-wise and on a job site, probably create some headaches or unsafe situations, but they're probably trying to fix. Of course, yeah, you got I think there's different backgrounds, right? You got different backgrounds, different schools of thoughts, different countries, provinces. Of course, you're going to have that headache on a job site. That's... And then you put effort into trying to develop your system based on what you know you can develop the system safely but you are also spending effort in developing the system wow i think we just lost calling randy oh there he is go ahead sir <laughs> oh there i am yeah i gotta somehow got a call there but i, deleted, <laughs> I declined that but yeah so sorry your uh, yeah so you're spending time on developing that system as opposed to uh or you're spending time on making that system comply with the regulation when you know it already should, or maybe it complies with another standard or another regulation in another jurisdiction. So that creates its share of challenges. Understandable. Um, if you had to do it again, the same, different. I think for us overall, I would, do it the same. I've learned a lot of things over the years that maybe uh, I could I could expedite the process, but that's all. It's all through trial and error. If you don't have that guidance, I'm sure, I guess when I say the same but different, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. There's no doubt. If I only knew then what I know now, it would be awesome. <laughs> you know, it'd be it a lot would of, be a lot of fun. There would be a right? Yeah, I uh, I love every day. You know, and. Yeah. Uh, wouldn't change too much. Uh, probably with regards to, you know, having the management skills that I have now would have been nice to have back then because starting the business, 
it's more of a it's more of a, a let's face it buddies and friends and that sort of thing and uh then as you get busier though you got to put on a bit more of a management hat and that creates some awkwardness and i had i had to learn that over time mm -hmm. and uh so that was a growing pain for us. And like every small business, it's the evolution of a business as you get more people working with you. Uh, but no, I wouldn't change a thing. Anything else that you guys want to add to this before we sign off? Is there anything pressing in the business of rescue that you wanted to bring up? What do you guys think? Sorry. Go ahead, Randy. No, I was just going to say, other than COVID, I mean, that's the, that, that's the big one. We're all, we're all trying to uh, navigate these times as best as possible, but it's, the uncertainty is, is, uh, is discerning. The uncertainty is, is, a little, is a little scary. And you know what's entertaining about that? I mean, I've obviously got a background in government, and I've obviously had a small business for a while. Small business is so much more uncertain than government work. Yeah. And yet COVID is such a, a game changer, such a phenomenon that it's people that are used to living with uncertainty every day. I mean, it's funny. It's, you can go to a business school and talk about budgets. Small business doesn't have a budget. It has a projection because if we don't bring the money in, there is no budget to spend it. It's a projection of what we think we're going to get and what we think we're going to spend. And so when you deal with people that are used to uncertainty at that level, saying that this has created a level of uncertainty that's unprecedented, I think people should take note because it is very difficult to plan when you don't even know if you can get out of your own driveway the next day. Mm -hmm. That's it. Well, one for you guys, I was thinking it was going to, Mark, you're going to bring it up, but as far as standards go, <laughs> what, do you, what do you guys think about the lack of an industrial rescue standard for people that are put in the field Let's face it, it's a full mixed bag of what you need right across the country. Do you think that there's a gap there and do you think it can be filled by an association and what would that look like? You want to take a stab at that first, Randy, or you want me to go at it? <laughs> go for it. Go for it, Mark. Um, the problem, I, I think generally, yes, but I'm going to have to really goalpost this thing. I mean, probably like you, I've sat on NFPA committees, I've sat on ITRA committees, uh, probably a SPRAC committee at some point, sat on lots of committees. And it's one of those, it's the old saying, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And all of a sudden it's like, yeah, we should have a standard. We should say, you know, a rescue technician for a work safe, whether that be provincial, whatever, needs to be X, Y, Z. And then we're going to get into the details of that. And the next thing you know, you're going to have to have, you know, a pink left shoe and a green hard hat on because at some point we went so far off the track of what we were trying to accomplish. And everybody knows that going in. I can see your heads nodding. Everybody understands that, that sat on these things. And yet we're, we'll form this committee, we'll create this standard in 10 years from now. Somebody will all be long dead and whatever. And someone will be going how the hell did we end up with green hard hats? And it's, it's sad that the bureaucraticness of a committee and of something like that takes over. And without slamming NFPA too hard, I sat on, I think it was the 1014 or 1041, the instructor standard many, many years ago. And we all agreed that in fire service instructor one, there was a need to be able to create a lesson plan, not just be able to read one. 
and obviously there's people in the room that represent industry and that represent training organizations and represent workbooks. And the consensus of the committee was, yes, we need to do this, but we're going to have to push it off a couple of rights because the training people have created training materials and there's the cost to that as we understand. And the workbook people have created workbooks to match that standard. And if they don't get an X number of rights out of that standard, then it's not cost effective for them to produce the materials. And we get a situation there where the tail starts wagging the dog and you can readily see why, because in order to get valuable input from them, they have to be able to get some return on that investment. But we've created a situation now where the standard is no longer for the person that's standing in front of a classroom delivering the training. The standard is, has been washed out through never, never land. And so long story, very short, cause I do go on. I would, be afraid that a standard would do that, that we would start with this great intention and in 10 years, we'd all be wearing two left shoes because of some bizarre thing that happened halfway through it. Yeah, that kind of pulls out of what I said earlier, where you, then you spend your effort trying to, just trying to do, to comply with regulations or the standard as opposed to come up with something that you just know will work, all right? And that's, uh, I didn't mean that, you're trying to skirt the standards or the regulations. It's no. you're left over with what you just said, Mark. And you're trying to be like, how do I, how do I make this work with two left shoes? And but the same view, <laughs> but different opinions. That's the, that, that's the problem. And, and too many people involved. And sometimes that can just do more harm than, than good. Well, I mean, you look at something so simple right now. In WorkSafe BC, part four says, use manufacturer's equipment as per manufacturer's specifications which means, and because we can use ANSI uh, equipment in BC, so I can take an ANSI ASAP on an ANSI shock absorber to an ANSI um, Aveo harness and run it off the front, and that's manufacturer's recommendations. Yet any NCSO, CSO here in BC on site will freak out because I'm not off my rear. But that's part 11, this is part four. Part four is a general requirement that I have to follow the manufacturer's recommendations. So now I can get into a semantics argument with somebody over, well, what trumps? And the best part about this is I could take that whole rope access team from BC and send them to Ontario and do rope access work. And the MOL, Ministry of Labor in Ontario, can show up and go, we don't do rope access in Ontario. And I can turn around and say, that's great. I work in BC. I'm up from Ontario. And that's totally legal as well. And so we've already created this myriad of intersecting standards that there is no, I, I, would, I would go to say, I mean, this is old military, I'm paraphrasing now. There is no standard at that point. If you have multiple standards, there is no standard. That's right. I, I agree. Did that answer your question, Colin, or did I make it even worse? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no doubt. I, I would like to see, like, uh, initially, you know, I was, I'd still like to see something so that, you can't just go and do a one or two day course and put out the same marketing material as a high angle rescue company as someone that's hiring NFPA thousand six guys. Cause right now, according to the regulations, those two without knowing anything, those two could be equal. If you have the, the only thing equal about you as we know is the marketing material. But as far as, you know, the complying with the regulations, Someone with a two-day high angle and confined space rescue course is equal as someone with years of experience in NFPA certifications. Mm -hmm. It's not very good. We know that. 
So I'd like to see something that somehow weeds that out. I'd like to see something that could bonify some testing criteria and the third party assessments, even if, you know, uh, it just creates a good, honest system. If I could get someone from outside my organization to come in and test my student candidates to whatever course I came up with. So I've identified 10 learning objectives. Mark, come on in and confirm for me that these guys know those 10 objectives. Yeah. And that way, I'm hold, you're holding me to account and I can hold you to account. Yeah. I think there's some value in that. You're right, the more detailed you make these standards and then you just get into uh, consensus, a consensus standard just means everyone agreed. It doesn't mean it's all good. <laughs> you know, it's just, you just agreed. Uh, and then sometimes that, that creates a pain. So it's, uh, it's difficult to know where this new standard is going to go now. And I think we're all just eyeing it and, uh, see where, see where it takes us. And, um, but I really like the idea of some bonafide third party testing so that we can say, look, these guys were taught, they know what they were taught, whether it's right or not, you know, you're just going to have to go back to determine your own job requirements. And if it's what you need to know, you determine that on your own, but at least, you prove that these guys have been tested against that criteria. And I think a lot of it comes to companies like us for education and it's self-serving. I mean, there's no two ways about it. And we, I used to do a lot more and as things get busier, that seems to fall off where you talk to different work safe organizations and different CSO organizations at their lunch and learns or whatever and discuss rescue to try to educate them. And the biggest thing I said, if you take one thing away from this, Go get a 75-pound haul bag, like a haul bag, throw 75 pounds worth of sand in it. Hire any rescue provider. I don't care who it is. Have them show up and drop that in your confined space and say, fetch. And hit the stopwatch. Mm -hmm. And see if you like what you get. And if you don't, kick them off your site and find someone else. Yeah. I've had a few CSOs, actually CRSPs and safety staff, get back to me that have done that and have thrown people off of their site because the next rescue company that showed up, they were like, Hey, the bag's still in there. If you can get it out, the job's yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's something from a, from a reputable point company point of view, it's something that could help us out with all our own due diligence, I think is just uh, confirming that competency at the instructor level, because I see it so often still where people have certificates and the amount of time they spent doing things and, I'm like, you might have been trained in it, but I'm not sure you can actually do it. That's it. Right? And also that upkeep. And I mean, Sprat's got a fairly decent system where it's third party and it has to be done on a cycle every three years. Where you look at rescue, I mean, the fire department would be happy never to send me on another rescue course. They're like, oh, you teach the stuff on your days off. You're fine. But it doesn't really work like that, right? There's, you know, innovations in the industry because if you're going to do it for me, then the next poor guy is going to get stuck the same way. And it's it's a constantly evolving skill that you have to go be a student in at times. There's a lot of value in just taking a taking a good quality course and having that third party evaluation, like Collins. It's worked so well for Sprat and Irata, so why not carry it on? Yeah. It, it just keeps everyone honest at the end of the day. And if you can comply with that basic thing, shouldn't be at it. But we know there's people out there that are doing it. There's still, there's still certificates being 
came up with. I don't know how they got them. It was like the days in the military. We got our hands on the certificate um, blanks, and we just started creating our own underwater knife fighting with Tukon. We'd like mount these <laughs> things up above our desks, right? We made our own license plates too, but that yeah, was the same idea. But uh, any other questions or comments, gents? No, it's awesome, guys. Thanks for yeah. uh, having me involved. Yeah, how can Thank people you. get a hold of you two guys? If they want to ask questions or want to get a hold of your business, uh, Colin, how can they get a hold of you? Easiest way for us is check out our website, uh, trr.ca. Easy to remember, trr.ca. And uh, you can get our full suite of services on there and all our contact information's on there. Uh, our number is 709-335-2325. The toll-free number's on the website, and I can't remember it right now. Randy, how do they get hold of you? Same. Visit our website, uh, totalfiresolutions.ca. Uh, you can get me email info at totalrescue.ca, 1-888-RESCUE-PLUS. All our information, services offered, everything's on the website. And I think people should understand out there, I mean, we basically have three competitors. We all work in Canada. We all run the same services doing this. And I think that's something else you have to understand as a business, that in the rescue world, you really have to help each other out as well. Otherwise, <laughs> there's always a time that people are gonna need something. Absolutely. Oh, for sure. We made some great friends with competition over the years and uh, you never you never get ahead by burning your competition. That's definitely one thing I've, I've learned and you know, we probably all had it happen to ourselves personally, but I've chosen not to do it and uh, it's not cool. One way or another, one day it's gonna bite you in the rear end. Yeah, we can all work. Well, what happened to Randy there? I don't know. <laughs> Somebody got a call in. Randy, go ahead and say that again because you you froze out. Oh, sorry. sorry. No, no. I just said that work for everyone. We can all work together. Wow. And... Nah. Well, There's no use again. in shutting anybody down. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, gents, and uh, appreciate you coming on. Mark, you might as well throw out your contact information there now too. Well, I guess we're going to be on your uh, your social you're, media, but uh, you're on my social make media. Make it all fair. It's okay. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Jeds. Uh, all right, guys. Take care. Thanks. Thanks, guys.